So if you have a physical Bible with you, or you have your phone with you, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. You will need the word. You're going to need it this year. That seems like an obvious thing to say for a preacher, right? But I think for some of us, that's an easy thing to assent to and a whole other thing to try to live by. But you're going to need the Word this year. There are so many things that the Word provides for us. If we'll take the time and invest ourselves in the Word. I love that old Tom Nelson quote, uh, don't pray for a ditch while you're leaning on a shovel, right? The same is true when we think about how do we relate to God's word. There have been a number of passages we've talked about through the years, and I tell you, I don't know the uh, frequency with which the Bible is self-referential, but it's got to be pretty high because it talks about itself a lot. And through the years, we've talked about passages like 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. We've talked about passages like Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks rock in pieces. We've talked about passages like Isaiah 55, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word go out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty or void, but it shall accomplish the purpose for which I sent it and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So there are a bunch of these passages that we've talked about before, a bunch of these passages that are self-referential from the Bible. I know that I've taught them. I know that I have preached some of them. I know that we have been in books of the Bible where we started a study in chapter 1, verse 1, and worked to the end that talked about these passages. But I tell you, in the entire time that I have been uh, working in church ministry, I have never taught Psalm 119. And I can't tell you why. Because it's extraordinary. One of, absolutely, one of the most beautiful passages in the entirety of the Bible. It's unique. Uh, first, it is the longest chapter in the Bible. And to prove that to you, uh, I print this out for my own uh, edification here. Um, this is my physical copy because I can't... Ooh, I'm still new to writing in Bibles. I don't want to write all over my beautiful goat skin. But, so I print it out. Uh, but Psalm 119, you'll see, is one, this is three columns here, one, two, three, four pages long. It is the longest chapter in the Bible. At 176 verses, it has the most verses of any chapter in the Bible. If you think of these were originally songs, right? Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to like a really cool hip church, and I'm not saying that we're not. I wore jeans today, come on, right? <laughs> But like a praise and worship song, and it's got about 30 stanzas, and the chorus in the middle is like the same 11 words over and over and over and over again, and that song goes on. Like, I go from interested to moved to, hey, what now? Right? And it's the, Psalm 119 is a really, really long psalm. I just want you to know that. It's also arranged in a very unique way. It's an acrostic. The Hebrew alphabet has, uh, and you may see this in the text here as it's divided up in this way for you, 22 letters. And so you'll see each one of the Hebrew letters is represented throughout Psalm 119. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hei, Vav, Zion, Hei, Tet, Yokaf, Lamed, 
right? And it works all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. Each one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in this acrostic, working from the very beginning to the very end, gets eight verses. This is how the psalmist has arranged his thoughts here in Psalm 119. Uh, there are eight different terms used almost synonymously throughout the chapter for its biggest subject, what it talks about more than anything else, and that's how God communicates through his word and his words. The eight terms that are used almost synonymously include law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, ordinances, word, and a little Hebrew term here called simra, which is sometimes translated words, maybe in your Bible, uh, or sometimes it's translated promises. Uh, eight different words to describe the same thing that's happening here in Psalm 119, which is an examination of how God has revealed himself by his words. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do this week. And uh, over the next few minutes, I'm going to do just some of this for you to get you started. Go home, take a piece of paper, and fold it in half, right down the middle, okay? And maybe you've spent a lot of time in Psalm 119 before, and you're holier than I am. That's certainly possible, right? Maybe you're just an uh, old, pitiful sinner like I am and haven't spent as much time in Psalm 119. So this would be a good exercise for whoever you are. Take that piece of paper, fold it in half, and on the left-hand column, I want you to write... Here is all the ways that the psalmist describes the word. That's what we're going to do first this morning. I'm going to show you four ways that the psalmist describes the word. What it does for him. The kind of gift it is to him. That's what we're going to talk about first. What is the word as a gift to the faithful? So write that at the top. And then work your way through Psalm 119. Asking that question. How many ways does it describe the the words of God as a gift to the believer. We will not comprehensively cover all of those this morning. There are 176 verses. That's an awful lot of verses. But we have a couple of current and former Methodists in the room, and they got to eat lunch before 12 o'clock, right? So we are not going to cover the entirety of Psalm 119. But you can go home, and you can, look, you can you can discover some of this on your own. We give you permission, right? A uh, regular saying here at Rock Mount Bible Church, don't take my word for it. Don't ever take my word for it, right? In the right-hand column, what I want you to write down is this, this question. Uh, this is how the word describes itself. The psalmist describes the gift of the word in Psalm 119. In this other column over here on the right, how does the psalmist then respond? What does he do about it? What actions emerge out of his reckoning with what the word says that it is? And I'm going to give you four of those as well. So four things, how do we reckon with what the word is in Psalm 119? And four things, what do we do with that? We start with verse 28 in Psalm 119. The words of God, number one, are our strength. They are our strength. In verse 28 of Psalm 119, the psalmist writes, My soul melts away for sorrow strengthen me according to your word why do we hesitate in evangelism why is our discipleship anemic why are we feeble in fellowship it is because we are from time to time extraordinarily and obviously weak um, almost every sport that you'll ever watch whether that's uh, golf or football or basketball or hockey or whatever it is, 
you uh, employ these athletes to do coaches. Coaches that teach technique and skill and strategy, but they almost all in the last few decades have had an additional coach as well, and it's the strength and conditioning coach. Now, you don't always see the strength and conditioning coach on the sidelines, but you'll maybe pick them up in an article here or there, or occasionally see them on a broadcast on television, uh, and they all look exactly the same. They're, I don't know, 40 or 50 years old. Uh, they have 2% body fat. Uh, they can bench 600 pounds, they drink five Red Bulls a day, and this is what their job is, because you get a starting center for the Duke Blue Devils, and he's a junior in high school, and he's going to be a phenom, because he's 6'8", but he only weighs 140 pounds. And the strength and conditioning coach is, you know, he's looking at his chops, and he's going, hey, guess what, just get him to me. I'm going to pump him full of protein. We're going to feed him eight times a day. He's going to get in the gym, and before you know it, he's going to be an absolute monster. This is what the Bible does for the believer. It's our strength and conditioning coach. Do you feel weak? The word will give you strength. Do you feel unable to do the task to which God has called you to do? Guess what? He's provided you exactly what you need, not only to be encouraged, but also to be equipped and emboldened and strengthened to do everything that we have been called to do. When we think about praising God, when you think about the Great Commission, when you think about evangelism and discipleship, when we think about the end for which the church was created, to glorify him and enjoy him forever, how do I do that? I don't have those tools. Guess what? He's given them to me in his word. I think about Jesus, who was in the desert. And I don't think it's incidental that we're described this in the Gospels that at the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus is called out for a time of testing. He is physically weak, hungry, thirsty, worn down by the brutality of an arid desert. And Satan comes to tempt him. To tempt him with physical things. To tempt him with spiritual things. And how does he respond? In his weakness, where does Jesus go for strength? You know what he does? He cites verbatim, repeatedly, the word of God. If the word of God will strengthen the Son of God, will it not also work for you? This is one of the wonders of the word. It's our strength. Secondly, it's our comfort. It's our comfort. Take a look at verse 50, Psalm 119, verse 50. And 49, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. It's comfort. It's comfort. 2020 was a long year. There were a lot of things that were canceled. You know what wasn't canceled? Death. Uh, we did not go to the movies this year. We didn't go to the state fair. We didn't go to the mall. We didn't go to a high school football game. But I still went to a handful of funerals. Now, I remember being like a sophomore or junior in college. And I was a little Bible college, and I had just changed my major from philosophy to pre-seminary Bible. Uh, and I was one of the most obnoxious people on the planet. 
because my pastor, who was maybe 40, 50, something like that, who had been to seminary and had gotten his doctorate, was a very thoughtful, very intelligent man, I was confident that in my second year of Bible studies that he knew absolutely nothing and that God had sent me as a gift, right, to tell him how he could be a little bit better at everything that he did. Now, I didn't vocalize all that. I did some. And uh, I can look back now and wonder why he didn't murder me. But, uh, he, again, more mature than I was. And I remember we went to the funeral. One of my friends, his dad died. And the preacher got up there and for maybe half an hour or something like that, he just read a lot of scripture. And there were some comments along the way and some encouraging things and this and that and everything else. And I just remember thinking, man, he, he just did something really unspectacular. He just read a lot of Bible passages. Passages about life and passages about hope and passages about comfort and passages about peace. And I thought, why didn't he give him a little bit more? Why didn't he preach it up? Why not give him a little pizzazz, a little homiletical juge? Why didn't he? <laughs> and I'll tell you why he didn't. Because he was a lot smarter than me. And he knew exactly what Psalm 119 says about the Word. I can't give you comfort like the Word of God can give you comfort. He read a lot of Scripture. Because that's where comfort is. It's our strength. It's our comfort. It's also our treasure. It's our treasure. Verse uh, 72, Psalm 119. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Now, he's going to say again in verse 127, Therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Now, think about that just for a moment. Uh, the most common coin in the ancient Near Eastern world is a shekel. And ten shekels put together, a silver shekel, is about a year's salary. Ten shekels, year's salary. That's, that's silver. Silver shekels. Uh, now, if you go ahead and you look at the Old Testament, you do some of these conversion charts, and I know that some of you, if you look in the back of your Bibles, you'll find a bunch of maps, you'll find a little concordance, and at some point you're going to find like uh, this jug equals this many quarts, right, in ancient Hebrew literature, and this many coins equals this. You may be familiar with uh, a mina. A mina is 60 shekels. A talent is 3,000 shekels, right? An immeasurably vast fortune is one talent. Solomon, uh, we find in Second um, Samuel Chronicles, one of the kings, I can't remember exactly where, received uh, 600 and some odd talents a year of gold and silver. It's 100,000 lifetimes of wealth he received in tribute every single year. Now, here's what the psalmist says about absorbing the word of God. He says, it's like gold and silver by the thousands. I've gotten sucked into watching this TV show the last couple of years. Uh, and it's about a couple of guys who have an operation on this little island called Oak Island, and it's off the coast of Nova Scotia. And uh, it's absolutely maddening, and I hate it, but I can't stop watching it, right? Every Tuesday night at like 9 o'clock, something like that. Because these guys have uncovered this myth, and it's been going on for years and years and years, 
that there is an ancient treasure buried on Oak Island. And the show is in like season seven, and once in a while they'll find a coin. Or uh, they'll find, they find a little lead cross. It, ooh, it looks like a Knights Templar deal. Or they'll find a little piece of shoe leather and everybody freaks out. And, and, the, and they find just enough to get you to keep watching. Right? Suckers just like me. Just keep watching. But they're looking for the gold. That's what they're looking for. <sighs> they are never going to find a treasure on the show. I know it. I know it up front. But Tuesday night at 9 o'clock, I'll get sucked in again. Right? That's how that works. What if I told you that we're going on a treasure hunt? You and I, well, we grab my metal detector, we grab a shovel, we're going out, and I say, follow me, and we're in the woods. And I guaranteed you that every single time we went out, we'd find gold. Would you go with me? I think you would, right? There are some pious few in here who are content with the, but I know a lot of you pagans are going to go with me, and we're going to go find the gold. This is how the psalmist describes the word of God. It's treasure. It's treasure. More than pieces of metal that we have arbitrarily assigned value to, this has real value. Not like a money that Congress just keeps printing out that's monopoly money, right? This is real stuff right here. It's treasure. He values it above all these other things. The word of God, it's our strength, it's our comfort, it's our treasure, and it's our guide. If you know any verse from Psalm 119, it's verse 105. I know you've heard it before. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, I know you've heard that one before. There's even a song, right? Mid-90s. Uh, I think we discovered it here at Rocky Mount Bible Church around 2008, right? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. And I like you too much to continue singing it. But I know that you know what that song is. And a light unto my path. It's our guide. It's our direction. Now imagine a world, an ancient Near Eastern world, with no electricity. No artificial light whatsoever. Extraordinarily rare also in the ancient Near Eastern world to have lamps that could travel. Most lamps were an open bowl with a little pinched end that you could send a wick in. And uh, maybe you would find them in a cave or in a home or in some structure, but they weren't very good at being carried around. You might have a torch, but that kind of thing is pretty rare. Now it's a dark night. It's moonless. Normally the stars in heaven would give you some light, but it's windy. The sand has been whipped up by the hand of God, and it's almost perfectly dark. And you have to venture out in the middle of the night some calamity has roused you from sleep. You have to visit a neighbor's house. You have to... How are you going to find your way there? How are you going to fend off the wild animals in the night? What will light your path? Just a little spark, just a little light, just a little lamp is the difference between death and life in that world. Now, it's not a coincidence that in the New Testament, when all of the writers gathered in the New Testament canon start talking about the world, they describe it with one particular descriptor, maybe more than any other. What is this world like? It is full of darkness. So where do I get light? Your word is a lamp to my feet. In the ethical, moral, philosophical darkness of our world, how do I move forward? 
sure that one step put in front of the next step to the next step is going to lead me to where God wants me to be. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, that's not a comprehensive list. There are many, many other ways that Psalm 119 describes the word. Again, I challenge you, go home, take your piece of paper, fold it in half, and on that one side, write down, how does the psalmist describe the word of God? And the other column you're going to write down, what does he do about it? Let me give you four to start there. The word is our strength, our comfort, our treasure, and our guide. How does the psalmist respond? First, he memorizes it. He memorizes it. Psalm 119, verse 11 the psalmist writes, I have stored up your word in my heart. I've stored it up in my heart. In verse 109, he says, I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. He talks about remembering it, storing it up, having it close to him, not forgetting it over and over and over and over again. He wants to have it close to him. In the middle of calamity, when I feel weak and I need strength, I want it close at hand when I am in pain and I want comfort. I want it close at hand when I am poor and need treasure and the wealth of God's self-revelation. I want it close by when I am lost and need a guide, a light. I want it right by me. This is not too hard to understand, right? I know, I know in our house, and it's kind of a running gag, and it's only kind of funny, but the other day I got a hangnail, and I went to look for a pair of nail clippers. And uh, Lauren, I've been married 14 years, and I have bought 150 pair of nail clippers, and I can never find one, right? I nearly just cut my finger off the other day. I was done, just absolutely done. Well, I could not find a pair of nail clippers. But that's not going to kill me. I'll survive having a hangnail uh, until I can find the nail clippers. But let's say it's the middle of the night and some fool comes barging in through the back door. Now, a couple of months ago, I bought a very nice shotgun. No, I bought a pretty cheap shotgun, but it does the same thing, right? You pull the trigger on this end and big boom comes out the other end, right? I know exactly where it is. I know where the shells are. I know how to point that thing down the stairs to any unfortunate soul who decides he wants in the middle of the night to come up my stairs, right? I can live without the nail clippers not being able to find those around the house. But I want to know exactly where that shotgun is. If I have a headache in the middle of the night, I want to know exactly where the ibuprofen is. If I am in some calamity, spiritual or otherwise, in my life, I want to have the Word of God close to me. I don't want to go searching for it. I don't want to wait until the moment of calamity and then try in the midst of all of that frustration and all of that pain and all of that weakness, then to go hunting for what I need. I want it close to me. And the way I get it close to me is I memorize the Word of God. And this is exactly how the psalmist describes it here. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart. Like a man making a journey through the desert, he packs his camel with water so that he can make it across dry ground, not waiting until he's thirsty to go searching for that life-giving liquid. He takes it with him. He stores it up for the exact moment of need. Secondly, he meditates on it. He meditates on it. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your way. 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. I will meditate on your wondrous works. Verse 40, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. This one is used all the time, let me tell you, and this is a, an incredibly important way to think about how we regard the word of God. 
and maybe we have to force out of our minds pictures of Eastern philosophy and religions, which has turned meditation into some weird hoodoo where I sit in a room and I chant a thing and I you know, sit in the Buddha pose and then I meditate on whatever. That's not what the psalmist is talking about here. When David writes in Psalm 1 that my delight is in the law of the Lord and on your law I meditate day and night, it means that it's not only perfunctory for him, but he carries it with him all throughout the day. Uh, we were talking about this just a couple of days ago. Uh, Annabelle has to memorize the multiplication chart, right, through 12. That was our goal, like in third grade. And so I remember what we did. Uh, we would run over. Tomorrow is the threes, right? Three times one is three. Three times two is six. Three times three is nine. And we walked through it, and we worked through it really, really well. And she got through the next day, and she passed the quiz. Maybe she only missed one of them. And she's got a 92. Man, she did a really great job. And then we do the fours. Then we do the fives. And at the end of the year, we had to come back and do all of them together. But you know the problem was? We had crammed all of it. <laughs> and I know that you've done that too. Maybe it was when you were a kid in elementary school. Maybe you still do it today and whatever your job requires of you. But you remember what cramming was? You would, you would memorize it just long enough to do whatever it is that you had to do, and then it was gone, never coming back, right? There are so many people who approach the Word of God, and maybe they've got a devotional life, and maybe they've got their trajectory set on reading some part of the Bible this year, and they're cramming for the five minutes that the Bible is open, which is actually kind of a lot for modern Americans. I'll tell you this, it's fascinating uh, the average American evangelical watches television for 35 hours a week and looks at their phone four hours a day, but doesn't read their Bible daily. I know that's more stick than carrot, but just let that sink in for a moment, right? They not only memorize it, faithful believers who engage the Word of God, they meditate on it. They don't just want it for the next five minutes. They want it for the rest of their lives. They're not just working for the short term. They understand that it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Life is a marathon. Nobody ever tells you when you're very, very young the kind of endurance it takes to get to be very, very old, right? The stamina that it takes to be a believer for years is incalculable. And the only way you're going to make it in faithfulness is if when we approach the Word of God, we're not just trying to get out of it a minute's worth of energy or strength or charm or comfort, but a life's worth. And we do that by meditating on the Word, taking it with us throughout the day, letting it invest itself in us morning, noon, and night. They memorize it, they meditate on it, they obey it. They obey it. Verse 1, this is how the whole thing starts. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 60, again, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Verse uh, 106, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. You see, it's, it's really been much more than just understanding what the word says. It's not just intellectual assent. It's doing it. It's living it. 
Uh, now, just imagine for a moment, you've been arrested. You've been arrested for murder. You were driving down Sunset, right? Uh, you were up there by Westridge, and you're, you're driving toward downtown Rocky Mount, and there's a car in front of you, and they're driving 15 miles an hour. And they are half in your lane and half in the turn lane. And they kind of run, and then they turn across the turn lane, right? And you just lose them because it's the most frustrating thing on the planet, right? And so you appear before the judge, and the judge goes, do you know what you did? Yep, I uh, sure do. Do you understand the law? Absolutely. Let me tell you, that sucker, he, man, he just did not understand how to use the turn lane. I lost it. Had to shoot him. Sorry, judge. <laughs> do you understand that that was wrong? Yeah, I understand, you know, the law about murder. Do you know you should? Yeah, absolutely. I know I shouldn't have done it. So, uh, look, I understand. Can now you let me go? <laughs> no, I can't let you go. It's not only that you know the word of God, it's that you must obey the word of God. Let me tell you, one of the most insidious types of believers on the planet and one of the most frail and endangered types of believers on the planet is someone who has convinced themselves that being really, really smart about Bible stuff is a substitute for maturity and obedience. I don't care foundationally how much you know unless you are taking that knowledge and putting it into practice by the way that you live your life. I think about what the future might hold here at Rocky Mountain Bible Church, and I think from time to time, what if we were going to hire somebody else on staff? What would we want out of them? And I tell you, the first thing I think about, oh, I'm going to go, I want to know, did they go to Bible college? Did they go to seminary? Do they know? Pump the brakes. Are they humble? Are they obedient? I would rather be close friends and entrust in fellowship my friendship to someone who didn't know a lot about the Bible, but what he did know, he put it into practice, than somebody who was an absolute scholar and genius but had a low disregard for how we live day to day in front of the Lord our God. They memorize it, they meditate on it, they obey it, and finally they let it fuel their praise. They let it fuel their praise. Verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. And then if you look at the very end of the psalm, 172 and 171 uh, and 72, my lips will pour forth praise for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. I tell you, this is one of the most important criticisms I think that are leveled by mainline denominational Christians against evangelical Christians. They say, you know what? You have no love for the Lord our God you're obsessed with the Bible. You don't actually worship the God of the Bible. You worship the book itself. This is called bibliolatry, right? When we have made an idol out of the word of God. And I tell you, I want to be really careful in the way that I think about describing my affections for the Bible. I love the word. But I love the word because it gets me closer to him. I don't love it as an academic venture unto itself. I don't love it because it scratches some intellectual or literary itch. I don't love it because it's clever and beautifully written. I love it because it is the means by which I reckon with who God is and what he wants from me, and it fuels my praise. It points me and pushes me toward him.
I was a senior in high school. And I, I had had a crush on this girl for a while, and she could not have cared less. And uh, one Friday night, my buddy Dave was having a party at his house, and uh, I don't know, a couple dozen people were going. And this girl found me in the middle of our school day, and she said, hey, you going to that thing tonight over at Dave's house? Yeah, yeah, I think I'm going to go. Can you give me a ride over there? And I went, yeah, sure. Apparently, I'm looking pretty good today. Got my Axe body spray. Really giving off good vibes here. Okay. Uh, and I picked her up in my uh, 92 Chevy Cavalier, and it was pretty tidy, right? Because I, I, here we go. It's finally, it's clicking here. All right. And we drove over to my friend Dave's house, and not dozens of people there. There's like seven people there. Uh, and it's me, and it's Dave, and a couple other people, and my best friend Andy. And uh, I don't know, we went outside and threw the Frisbee or something, threw a football, came back inside, and they're on the couch. Andy and this girl are cuddled up on the couch on the other end. And it dawned on me, oh, she didn't like me. She was using me to get to him. She was, in that moment, way uglier than I ever realized, right? <laughs> now, we've got to be really careful about the way that we approach the Word of God. It's beautiful. It's genius. It's brilliant. It's glorious. But it is not an end unto itself. It is the fuel that we throw on the fire of our worship. It helps us to glorify him. It helps us to know him. It helps us to make much of him and magnify him. That's what it does. And this is what the psalmist understands. That all of our learning and all of our education and all of our discipleship in the word of God, it transforms us in innumerable ways, but none so important as this. It helps me relate to and praise my God. That's what it does. It gives me a bigger picture of him and lights that fire for worship. Father, I pray that as we set out here at the beginning of this year to study your word, next week on Sunday mornings as we return to Hebrews and as so many people in this room embrace a, maybe a new reading plan and a new devotion to devotional time on a daily basis, that everything that we study, that everything that we learn, that all of our investment would be geared ultimately toward this, that you might be magnified, that your glory would be made known to us, and that our hearts and our minds would be ready to dish it all out in praise. For everything that we take in, help us to, to live it out in obedience and in worship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.